to go to look over that way. Okay, I think we should pray. Oh dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with worshipful hearts, thanking you for your mercy to us, thanking you for your kindness and your love to us, thanking you for sending Jesus to the cross, making a provision for us to have a relationship with you, and suffering on a cross and bearing your wrath in our place and forgiving us. And what an amazing truth that we are forgiven, and that we are loved by you. You've called us, Lord, you promised to keep us. You promised that one day we'll be with you in eternity. And you promised that you will complete what you have started in us. Oh, Father, you are so worthy to be praised, so worthy to follow hard after. So this morning, Lord, I pray that we would be alert women that we would not be distracted by other things going on, maybe later today or just in our tiredness, Lord, that we would be alert when we open up your word and hear from you what you have to say on this topic. Father, I pray that we would all be convicted by your spirit where you want us to be convicted and, and that we would be encouraged to embrace who you've created us to be as women. Father, ultimately you have the right to rule what you have made. And what you have made um, in, in male and female. And your rule is good. Help us to embrace it, love it, and teach it to the next generation. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well... We are going to take a look at Wellspring Disciplines, so if you don't mind, if you would like, turn your notebooks over like we always do, um, and we're going to talk about why we're here and talk about um, applying the disciplines to our lives. But Wellspring's purpose is to equip and encourage uh, the Women of Grace Bible Church. That's us, and we want to encourage one another to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with his word. When we open up his word, we want our hearts to engage and be shepherded. And we want to live gospel-transformed lives, and that's how we can um, do that. And what does God do in that? He strengthens the church and its gospel purpose. That's why we're here this early on a Saturday morning. Because we want to understand, and we want to grow, and we want to we want to unite our lives around these spiritual disciplines. And it's really encouraging to see this many of you with bright, shining faces so early in the morning with your cups of coffee. At Wellspring, we focus on three disciplines concerning our hearts, our homes, and ministry. And when we say heart, remember, 
what we're talking about. We're talking, uh, we want to talk biblically, and we want to remember that it's our inner man, it's all of you, it's our mind and our emotions and our desires and our will. Everything we do is shaped and controlled by what our heart desires. Now remember, God transformed our hearts when he saved us. We are new creatures in Christ. We have peace with God. We didn't, we didn't want our hearts to be changed before. But now he's given us new desires. He's given that to believers. And we're united with Christ. And all that accomplishes, that once and for all accomplishment by God. Remember, it's that one-time event. But now we are... Uh, as we're being renewed day by day in progressive sanctification, there's still this residue of indwelling sin in our hearts. And the, but the good news is sin is, is no longer our master. There's still lingering effects. There's still a residue of sin. But we thank God we're not who we once were, right? We were once dead. We were once lost. We were hopeless. And that was the condition of our inner man before he intervened and saved us. We're not yet where there won't be that battle with sin. That's heaven. But while we're now in this mixed condition, it's necessary to care for these hearts. We need to feed these hearts and strengthen these new hearts, our new man in Christ, with the truth from God's word and with the hope we have in the finished work on the cross in the gospel. His word tells us who he is, tells us who we are, what he's done, how he wants us to respond. Hearts need to be exposed to him and his word so that we can draw near to the one whom we've been united to, Jesus, and to treasure him above all else. But we do have to be purposeful, right, and disciplined. These are disciplines to grow in. We're not perfect in them. This is a lifelong pursuit, right? At the beginning of Wellspring, you were asked to pick a reading plan, I'm sure, just like on Thursday, to read through the Bible, to make it your daily habit, to open up his word and to meet with him in his word. And the purpose in that is to be strengthened and grow in this discipline, to grow in the grace and knowledge of him, not to check that box where the date is, you know? So at this point, have you fallen behind maybe in your reading plan? Are you discouraged in that? Are you thinking, you know, you're pretty much a failure at this point? Well, thankfully, God's love for us isn't dependent on our failures or successes, right? It's only based on his son's finished work on the cross. So let that be your motivation to worship him in his word. So if you're discouraged, don't give up. Start today. Keep going. Hit reset. Pick up where you left off or cross out that date completely and just keep going. I want to encourage you and let's encourage one another to keep going and persevere. Okay? All right. Let's talk about discipline too. We're in discipline too this morning. And uh, that's because we have graduated from Discipline 1, and we're going to move on. Has you seen if you were awake? <laughs> that is not true, right? That's not true. We never graduate from Discipline 1. Discipline 2 is the overflow 
of discipline one. Discipline two is about her household relationships. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. In the first place, to make an impact with our hearts for God and his word is where we live, in our homes, regardless of season of life. You know, and this seasons change. For whether we're empty nesters, whether we're single or married, with or without kids, living with parents, living with siblings or roommates, um, to those who are coming into our home, we make an impact. And as we shepherd our own mixed condition, hearts first, and we're drawing near to him, pursuing Christ, delighting and growing in affection for him, we want to make, and we're fighting and dwelling sin and ongoing sanctification, we want to place a priority on our household relationships, a priority in making a gospel impact with those we live with and those who enter, not leapfrogging over or neglecting those relationships. And that can be easy to do, so we need to be purposeful. So it's good to ask, what kind of impact or influence do you have on those relationships? You know, you may have heard this before, but we are making an impact. What kind of impact are we making? Are we having a gospel impact, a gospel influence? Are we repenting? Are we forgiving? Are we loving? Are we humbly serving? Are we overlooking offenses? Are we preferring others? And so on. Are we growing? Are we growing in that? It's very sobering to think about, isn't it? But please be encouraged. This too is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. And it doesn't just happen because you want it to. It takes being purposeful. With our own hearts first. That's discipline one. That's why we talk about discipline one so much. To see these relationships as a priority, we have to be purposeful. And the third discipline is ministry, where we minister to others. As we continue to grow in these disciplines, we don't want to wait until we've mastered them, because we never will. But as you're being faithful and pursuing and growing, you minister to others in the church and outside of the church, to a lost world. It's the very same thing. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling your ministry within your household, that's discipline one and discipline two, you step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So there are your disciplines. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at what God's word says about womanhood. So I'd like to start by asking a couple of questions. How many of you have given much thought to the topic of biblical womanhood, God's design for, for women? I have another question. Do you think that maybe some of what we believe about our womanhood or femininity, femininity is based or influenced by our culture and not based on scripture? There are so many conflicting voices in our culture today. And one of the loudest voices over the last 50 years or so has been a voice of feminism. So we're going to take an extra amount of time this morning, and we're going to look back in history, somewhat important to be informed. And then we're going to talk about where we find ourselves in our culture today, at least the little bit that I've learned. There's so much I don't know. And then mostly, most importantly, we're going to, be, we're going to look into God's word. That's most important to see what God 
uh, says in his word about this. So what is feminism? Well, feminism started out being this radical movement about women's rights. And you know, we even enjoy the right to vote because of this movement. And I'm thankful for that privilege to vote. In the beginning, the feminist movement started out being about legal rights, and it grew and, it and developed into something much, much more than that. It's a distinct worldview with its own ideologies and values and ways of thinking. The feminist era over the last 50 years or so was a period of time where feminist ideas, they were being developed, they were being promoted and accepted into our culture. Even among this movement and their agendas, there wasn't really one consensus regarding their definition of feminism or, their meaning, or the meaning of womanhood. It was all over the board, um, and it's really kind of hard to define. I'll try to describe some of the ideologies. Years ago, there was a huge debate regarding women's rights uh, and, and, and the debate to have a career while raising children. And we don't even hear as much about that today. There's still some. There were pro-abortion feminists um, whose campaign was for the woman's right to take the life of her unborn, unborn baby. And that was and still is their agenda. And there were pro-life feminists who totally opposed abortion while subscribing to many other ideas of feminism. The most important thing to understand is that women's rights and equality in all forms is what they were after. It was about freedom and choice to be whoever and do whatever you want to do. The cultural message in all forms was and still is rights, equality, self-sufficiency. Women started being offended by chivalry, like they didn't want a guy to open a door for them that was offensive or pay for dinner. Songs like, I am woman, hear me roar. Anybody remember that one? Or R-E-S-P-E-C-T. They're anthems. Where are their anthems? And, and still, women's anthems. It was this movement that promoted thoughts that women are better and smarter and stronger than men. It was when degrading men became funny and acceptable. We see so much of that in commercials and TV today, right? It was a whole mindset of personal authority instead of bowing before the authority of God. Well, over the last past decade or longer, we've been transitioning in, from that feminist era into what some call a post-feminist era. Uh, what are the differences? Well, in the feminist era, feminism or feminist ideas were being developed. And now they're fully formed. Their agenda and philosophies were pushed by philosophers and teachers and professors. And now they're embraced and believed by mostly everyone. They've been integrated into our thinking. The ideas were radical then, and now they're just commonplace. In the feminist era, feminist ideas were being, they were identifiable, and now they're, they're indistinguishable. Feminism as a movement seems to be pretty much over. It's really not a movement anymore. It's transitioned into being the current mindset and belief of most everyone in our culture been so mainstreamed into our society, it's just in the, it's normal, it's in the air we breathe, it's in what we're told to think, 
what we see when we shop, what we hear, uh, when, what we hear when, uh, what women should be like when we watch TV and movies, entertainment, and social media. It's in our books, and it's in our, in our educational system. It's in the Girl Scouts of America. Now, I love Girl Scouts, and I love Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> but there is a message of empowerment. We just have to watch and guard, right? It's in, it's in American Girl Stories. It's in a lot of little books and books for little girls. One author said, feminism is so seeped into our culture and mindset, it's like intravenous drugs into the veins of an unconscious patient. Women bought into the lie, hook, line, and sinker that feminism in all its forms Bring women what they want, that joy and fulfillment and purpose and meaning in life and what they think they deserve. And all this demanding of rights was supposed to bring women greater fulfillment, freedom, liberation. It was supposed to make women feel better about themselves, but instead, instead we see just the opposite. It's not true. We know what they are seeking can only be filled by the transforming power of the gospel. When we humbly acknowledge the truth of the gospel, when we repent and believe in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and all the realities of the gospel and live according to God's design, that's when we'll find fulfillment and joy and purpose and meaning. Because all that yearning and longing for something more will not be filled with anything else. It can't be filled by the formula that our culture has been given. Okay, so where do we find ourselves as a culture today? Hmm, pretty confused culture. Our upcoming post-feminist generation, or some call it a third, third wave feminist generation, has little or sadly no understanding of God's design for men and God's design for women. Many reject completely his design for gender. One of the most recent and devastating debates is over the God-given differences between men and women. Today, many men and women are despising their gender. There's so much talk about gender confusion and gender disorder and gender identity, gender neutrality. You younger, you younger women probably uh, see more of that than I do in my bubble. But we're seeing even more of what's been going on for years where men and women believe that they were born with wrong body parts. Females want to be males and males want to be females. There's more and more surgeries to reconstruct. They're called reassignment surgeries. Parents are giving children hormone replacement drugs basically to switch their hormones. And I've read quite a few blogs and it's just so sad to see the hopelessness and despair and rebellion. And we know, we know, they don't need new body parts, right? We know they need new hearts, just like we needed a new heart. No different. I needed a new heart. I was completely rebellious as well. But God in his mercy, he gave me, he gave us a new heart, and he changed everything. So let's keep that in mind as we think about this and love and pray for others, that God in his mercy would save them as well, okay? Okay, so in this push to be 
whatever gender they decide they want to be. There are those who don't want to be recognized by gender at all. They want to be gender neutral. It's really happening. It's becoming more and more mainstream and accepted. They, they want to be recognized as human beings rather than, rather than a he or a she, him or her. More and more parents are raising their children to be gender neutral as babies. They're allowing their ch children to decide what gender they want to be when they get older. Really. They're working on coming up with an official pronoun for them. There's blogs on how to raise gender neutral children. Communities encouraging one another in that. They're calling boys princess boys or boy chicks. There's, I, I, I uh, saw on the news recently that there's a very popular Hollywood couple allowing their daughter to choose and explore what gender she wants to be. And right now it's a boy. I've mentioned before when I was here a couple of years ago, um, I talked about this school in Sweden, and it's operating under the theory by eliminating any reference to gender. These little preschoolers won't fall prey to the stereotype of gender roles. They say in this preschool there's no boys, there's no girls, they're just friends. They're just, they're going to call one another friends. And uh, stating that the school gives them a fantastic opportunity to be whoever they want to be. So they don't allow the pronouns of like him or her. And uh, now they've officially come up with a word for it. It's, they call one another hen. And there was a waiting list in, for that school there, and, and now there's another one. And, you know, I've read some about some, some investigating into schools like that here. Um, on our U.S. passport application, this is in the United States, for children, the word mother and father, uh, the words mother and father were removed and replaced with gender-neutral term terminology like parent one and parent two, stating that with the changes in medical science and reproductive technology, we are confronting situations now that um, we would not have anticipated 15 years ago. You know what? If you sign up for a Google account and now if you sign up for a Facebook account, you will have the option of choosing male, female, or other. Did you know that? How subtle is that? More and more universities are providing gender-neutral accommodations for students. Um, high schools are, are now uh, faced with having to make serious decisions about this. In Minnesota, there was a school um, last year, it was the 33rd, uh, making the state the 33rd to adopt a formal transgender student policy. So they're having to come up with policies for high schools. And the board set out criteria for determining whether transgender students who are born male but identify as female can be eligible for girls' teams. And nearly 500 schools in the league's membership um, at the nearly 500 schools. Um, the state already permits girls to compete in boys' sports. In Michigan, there was this uh, high school who um, made their prom court gender neutral, no kings, no queens, in order to um, accommodate a transgender student. There are cities in the United States that cover uh, sex reassignment surgeries for government employees, treating these surgeries as medically necessary. And I think Obamacare covers at least a part of that now. I could go on and on. This isn't, this isn't to cause fear. It's just to inform. We're in a different time, even from five or ten years ago. But we know there's nothing new under the sun, right? But you know what this is? 
all of this is denying our Creator's perfect design. The secular world is now deeply committed to this idea of gender neutrality. They want a world free from any concern of gender, a world where masculinity and femininity are completely erased, not just blurred, but erased as old-fashioned ideas. Or at least the categories of male and female are just negotiable. Their argument, we have the right, we have the right to make whatever adjustments, alterations and transformations in gender and gender, and gender relationships that we desire, and they're demanding that right. This is a full-on attack against God, who created us in his image, in his own image, male and female. And, you know, we just need to see it that way. We need to see it that way. John Piper and Wayne Grudem write this. I think that's on your notes. We're still in the introduction, by the way. <laughs> Long introduction. The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness and femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. It's taken a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. The consequence of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more pr promiscuity, more emotional distress, and suicide that comes with the loss of this God-given identity. Kind of sums it up, right? Now, this is the world we live in. This is where godlessness has taken us, and this is what sin does. It's all about someone exalting self over against all the rest of what, well, a culture has understood over the last thousand of years, but this is an exaltation of self against God. And you know what I'm saying? It may not be politically correct. It's not a politically correct thing to say, but that's okay, because we want to be biblically correct, right? It should come as no huge surprise to any of us that the secular world is confused and completely distorted about the identity and calling of women. But what is worse is the extent to which the worldly philosophy of our culture has influenced even the evangelical world. They may not even know it. But I can almost guarantee you that none of us in this room even exempt from being affected by it. In fact, one author says, scores of evangelical women are functional feminists because the world's paradigm for womanhood is the only one they ever heard. Well, that was me. That was me. See, these ideas are just not out there because God in his grace, he saves people, he saved us, out of the culture, and he gives us a new heart, and then he brings us into his church, and we bring some of, of that thinking in, right? But if, So, of course, um, it's going to be in our church, in the church. But the church, rather than holding up the word of God and exalting God's design for men and women, teaching and discipling, has in many cases let that ideology into its teaching. And so we see gender-neutral Bibles, women's ministers, pastors, and preachers, gay clergy, and so on, right? You know, in the past, truths about gender were generally caught um, 
you know, but now they must be intentionally taught. The default setting has changed, even for those of us raised in the church. We can't assume that the people in our church have a biblical framework for understanding these things. We can't assume that. Manhood, womanhood, male-female relationships have been primarily, <clears throat> have become primarily teaching and discipleship issues. We must teach. In order to teach, we must know. We must know. So critical that we're grounded in deep, gospel-centered theology about God's design for gender. It's essential in order to combat the, the relational and sexual marital carnage that accompanies this worldly mindset. So as a solution to try to rewind the clock and go back to the 1950s, you know, into that leave it to beaver era, you guys know who that is? What show that is, you youngins? Okay. <laughs> no. The solution is to embrace the Word of God, to embrace and trust His divine design in this culture right where He has us. So we need to know, we need to humbly speak and live out clearly what the Bible teaches about womanhood without fear. Without fear, even, in, even though we may be persecuted for speaking that truth, we speak it. But we do it in love, humbly, with confidence. And we teach God's plan for women and for men, to our sons and to our daughters, the next generation. There's so much at stake. Grace Bible Church has eight biblical convictions. And you have the web link, I believe, on the uh, last page of your outline on the bottom. Right? Yeah. Oh, there it is. Very last, very last line. Um, and I'm basically going to cover biblical conviction number seven moving forward. Biblical manhood and womanhood in our church. And we're going to survey scripture this morning where we're going to, where we see God doing two things throughout his sufficient and inerrant word that cannot be separated. So throughout your outline, you're going to see this. You're going to see, one, you're going to see spiritual equality. Men and women are spiritually equal before God and each other. And then you're going to see role differentiation or role differences, the distinctions and differences between roles of men and women in our families and in the church. Men and women are spiritually spiritually equal before God. And we have different roles in our families and in the church. And on your outline, you'll see that in three segments. You'll see it in the Old Testament. We're going to cover that, and then we're going to look at Jesus' treatment of women. And then we're going to go, uh, we're going to look more into the New Testament. So it's so important to understand this. These two biblical realities are inseparable. Men and women were spiritually equal before God and others. And there are distinctions and differences between roles. This is called a complementarian view. And we embrace this complementarian view because that's how God's revealed it in Scripture. And we embrace this view because of the amazing revelation that biblical manhood and biblical womanhood bring into this dark culture and world. 
Listen, we will find freedom and joy not in casting off his design, but embracing it. Our true joy is found when, we, when our whole pursuit is making God more clearly known. So let's embrace whatever God has given us to make him more visible. We don't have to look to our culture to find our identity. We don't have to consult our feelings to discover our purpose. There's only one place to go, right? To know what it means to be a woman. At any age, at any stage of life, old, young, single, married, widowed, with or without children, whatever season of life, and that's God and his word. He made women. Elizabeth Elliot said this. She said, in order to learn what it means to be a woman, we must start with the one who made her. So let's turn finally to Genesis 1. Turn to Genesis 1, 26. And I, we're starting now uh, with number one, the Old Testament, starting with spiritual, uh, spiritual equality in the Old Testament. And from the very beginning, we see in Scripture that men and women are equally created in the image of God. Start in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is his design. Male and female were created in the image of God. Neither one has more or less of God's image than the other. Man and woman are equally totaled by sin. Neither one is more sinful than the other. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Um, we've, got the, we've got the scripture on your outline. In chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 15, it says that Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we can look to Jesus to see what that image is. And what did it look like for Jesus to bear the image of God? Well, Philippians 2.6 says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, Jesus existed in the form of God, and form is a similar word to image. So he existed in the image of God, and then... He didn't regard that unity, that equality with God as something to be grasped after. Verse 7 says, He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, he did not promote himself, didn't fight for his rights, but rather here in verse 7, says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. It's interesting. Being in the form of God led him to take on the form of a slave. The image of God is that of serving, not grasping for yourself, your ideas, self-promotion, but humbly giving yourself away like a slave does. Jesus confirmed this when he says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather what? Anyone? To serve. He came to serve. The Son of Man came to serve. And how did he serve? 
He gave his life away for many. So that's the image in which men and women were created to bear this kind of self-giving love in Christ. However, men and women have also been equally impacted and corrupted by sin. After man was created in God's image in Genesis 1, right around the corner in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. Genesis 1 and 2, it's all about God's majesty and his awesome power and his perfect design and abundance. We can't even relate to a humanity that is perfectly innocent. Unfortunately, we can relate to chapter 3, right? So we go from his majesty and his wonders in, chapter one and two, in chapters 1 and 2 to very familiar territory. When the serpent came, Eve was attacked with the very image of God in her. He slandered God, and Eve's, hot, Eve's heart was enticed. She became a self-grasper, tarnishing the display of God's image in her. And that's what we do when we live for ourselves. So Eve sinned. And then Adam gave in, and two self-graspers obscured the image of God in them. And we've all been plagued with that ever since. So, all men and women are created in the image of God, equally impacted and corrupted by sin's presence and sin's power. Men and women are both equally unable to change their sinful condition. Both equally in need of salvation. One is not more in the image of God than the other, and one is not more spiritually bankrupt than the other. We are spiritually equal. But there are differences in our roles that God has made for us. We're on role differentiation on your outline. You guys hanging in there? Yes? Let's turn to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, starting in verse 18, where God shows us his purpose in creating the woman. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken from the man. He brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It was Adam who was created first and then Eve. God created man for a particular task and he needed a helper. Adam was incomplete without someone to compliment him in fulfilling the task of, uh, the task of taking dominion over the earth. So God created Eve. Adam didn't need another Adam. He needed someone who was different. He needed Eve. And right here, we already see the differing roles before the fall, before sin entered the world. Even the order in which they were created is linked to different roles. But it doesn't affect our spiritual equality at all. 
So God created man first, then the woman. God had an order in mind when he created, an order that Paul will repeatedly appeal to in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. You see there's an order there? Okay, so God always established that men would be in leadership roles right from the beginning. In Israel, from the garden to the final prophets, there was Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to David and the rest of the kings, the priesthood of Israel, the prophets of the nation. Women were also active in the religious life of the nation. There's Miriam and Huldah. They were prophetesses. And Deborah, who was a judge. But what we do not have an account for in the Old Testament is significant. There were never any women priests, heads of tribes, kings. So, let's turn back to um, chapter 3. And let's take a look at what sin does. So we're still in the Old Testament. And we see... Um, that we're going to look at um, we're going to look at Genesis three, and we see that sin distorted their God-given role differences or differentiation. Sin did not introduce it. Remember, man and woman already had their roles prior to the fall. Their roles were not introduced as punishment after or because of the fall. Our roles are not God's punishment for sin at all. The distortion of our rules, or yeah, doesn't start when God uh, pronounced the curse to women in Genesis 3.16. It started at the very beginning in chapter 3. We find Eve. She's in the conversation with the serpent, the tempter. He's evil and he is deceptive. Verse six, uh, and in verse 6, we see that she believed his lie that if she gave in, she would become wise, and that God was keeping something from her. So she disobeyed God, and she ate. And she gave it to her husband, and he rebelliously ate. So we already see that. Who was she trusting in? She trusting in herself? Yeah. In her own wisdom? Think about Eve. We can identify sin in Eve. We can some some of her sin. We see independence. We see self-grasping, self-reliance. Why was she even listening to the serpent? She trusted in her own judgment, getting out from under God's authority, out from under her husband, and seeking to satisfy herself, rebelling against God. At that point, was Eve fulfilling her role as a helper? No. How does that acknowledge Adam's leadership over her? How does it honor God's right to define her role? And Adam certainly had his part and is fully responsible as well. In a world previously untouched by sin, he believed the lie that she could trust herself more than she could trust God. And as we live in this mixed condition, thankfully this side of the cross, this is familiar to us as well. How do we see this in our own hearts? Just like Eve. You know, if we're married, we may be independently stepping out from under our husband's protection and leadership to, and 
and uh, seeking to control, have control over him. We may, be, we may do it by taking charge, seeking to control or to exert our own will, stepping outside of God's design. You may be thinking, I'm pretty sure I don't try to control. Or maybe you're thinking you do already. <laughs> and we can be done. <laughs> but it can show up in various ways. For some of us, it's trying to control. That trying to control may be quiet. It may be a quiet, smoldering, pouty, silent treatment. Sometimes that hostility can take an attitude of coldness or indifference. With others, it's shouting. It's a shouting hostility that isn't much of a secret to anybody, especially those in your household. And for some of us, well, we have such a way of bulldozing right over others with our words, right? You know, I can relate to that. This is what sin does. You know why God gave us roles? Because he has something to communicate through them. And sin's motive is to destroy that image through undoing through undoing of the rules that God has for us. Sin distorts our God-given role differences. When Adam and Eve sinned, there were consequences. They forfeited the life and the goodness of the garden. They traded unhindered fellowship with God. There's pain in childbirth and childbearing and rearing. Um, we now deal with disease, physical complications and pain. Even in raising and nurturing children, many of us know that well. There's also death, and most importantly, there's separation from God. Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin, but we're no different. See, equal rights, men, or gender is not the problem like the world would have us think. Our problem is sin. Sin warps everything. James tells us that sin is the reason for jealousy and selfish ambition, disorder, and every vile practice that characterizes false witness. Sin's the reason we need a Savior. Now we're going to look at how Jesus emphasizes the exact same thing. There's a consistent pattern. We're on number two in your outline. We're going to see where Jesus dramatically emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with man in the midst of this woman's meaning, Greek and Roman and even Jewish culture. In that culture, women were possessions, not even worth teaching the Torah to. In fact, they believed that it was better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. They claimed that by their very nature, women couldn't understand spiritual or theological truth. Men in Jesus' day normally wouldn't even allow a woman to count change into their hand for fear of physical contact. Jesus dramatically countered this godless view of women. The references are on your outline, and you can look them up later if you would like, um, but I will go through them. We see in Matthew, Jesus uses illustrations and images familiar and useful for women. Jesus revealed himself as Messiah to women in John 4. In Luke 10, 38, Jesus taught Mary as she sat at his feet, which was so countercultural. Jesus touched women. He allowed them to touch him. In Luke 8, Jesus allowed women to travel with him and his disciples, and that was countercultural too. In John 20, Jesus revealed himself to Mary Magdalene, and after he rose from the dead, sending her to tell the men, despite Jewish courts not allowing women to witness because they were considered liars. See, in Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion. He showed them respect in a way they had never known in their culture. 
He did not demean women, ever. All of this demonstrated their spiritual equality. And Jesus, at the same time, he did nothing to exalt women to a place of leadership over men. And what he also never did, though he clearly could have, is to choose any woman to be among the twelve. That would have been the perfect time to do that, right? It's a prime opportunity to change what God so far revealed in the Old Testament, a time to establish a change in women's roles, but he didn't change women's roles. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't choose women disciples? Well, because he affirms and continues God's view and pattern for the role of women revealed in the Old Testament. And that leads us to number three in your outline, the rest of the New Testament under spiritual equality. Let's uh, look at Galatians 3. Is that on your... It's on here. You don't need to turn there. Galatians 3, 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Redemption involves no distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender over another. Ever. For example, on your outline, we see Priscilla and his wife Aquila. They ministered together. They equally served Apollos to build him up with more complete teaching on Christ and doctrine. In Philippians 4, Odia and Sintuke, they were both women, and they shared Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel. We also see that both men and women receive spiritual gifts. And uh, in 1 Peter 3, a wife is called a fellow heir of the grace of life. However, there are differences in roles. You know, it is so easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality in the New Testament. We love that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, don't we? That men and women have an equal need for Jesus, an equal need for the cleansing uh, in his blood. But ladies, the gospel's every bit as much on display in the different roles God describes for men and women in the New Testament. He's designed different roles specifically for us in order that we participate together in displaying the gospel. Remember what we see in his word is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It was not inspired by the culture of that day. You see references on your outline where the different roles and responsibilities for men and women are described. And I you see that there. Um, and to summarize them, we would say this. For leadership roles in the church, the elders and the deacons are offices filled by men. The primary broader teaching responsibility rests on the men. This is God's design for displaying the love of Christ for his church. Men have the incredible responsibility to, to display Christ, his loving servant leadership toward the body. What a responsibility they have, and we've been learning more about that as we've been going through Acts the last few Sundays, haven't we? So it's a good time to ask and evaluate. Am I making that God-given role for them a joy? I'll say that again because I messed up. Am I making that God-given role a joy for them? This role, to serve and to lead us, uh, am I making it a burden? These overseers, they take their role 
at Grace Bible Church very seriously, and I want to be a joy to them. Women, the roles and privileges that God has given us are about displaying the supportive and submissive character of the church in her relationship to her Savior. We respond, we follow the lead of our elders and of our deacons. So when we serve in our ministries in the church, they're all overseen by the elders and deacons. Wellspring's overseen by the elders, and I love that. Wellspring's overseen actually by Scott Maxwell. He is uh, the elder over us, and there's protection. See, our elders, we know, they love his church, and we've seen how they take their role seriously. They love and they care for us and they serve us in their leadership. We need their shepherding. We need their leadership, and so it's comforting to know that we have it. This is all about how God displays his love and care and protection and leadership for his people and how we, his people, trust him and we follow his lead. And in marriage, we find the very same principle at work. Husbands have this mind-boggling responsibility, this calling to love their wives like Christ loves the church. So another question. Do you see the high calling that husbands have? Wives, how are you helping in that? Are you making that easy for them? Or are you hindering that? Are you being lovable? This responsibility for husbands to love wives as Christ loved the church, just think about that. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself to purchase us for himself. So if you're married, you can display your trusting submission to your Savior by submitting to your husband as to the Lord. And if you're not married, you have the privilege to display your trusting submission uh, to the Lord by submitting to the authority that God has placed over you, whether it's your parents, your boss, elders in the church, small group leaders. See, when men and women fulfill their God-given roles, and we as women live in humble, respectful submission and support under our church leaders and under our husbands, what happens? The word of God's honored, and the gospel is on display. We actually demonstrate to one another and to a watching world the relationship we were saved into at the cross. Jesus in relationship with his bride. Isn't that exciting? It's good. We're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks when we talk about uh, bearing God's image in marriage and singleness. But this is why we embrace who God has created us to be because God has something to reveal about himself to us and to the world through not only our spiritual equality, but also through our differing roles. Okay, so how do the different roles reveal our great God? Well, first of all, think about the members of the Godhead. They each have different roles, along with their divine equality. Man and woman give us a simpler picture of who our triune three-in-one God is. Think about this. Each of the three members of the Godhead reveal the image of God to be this self-giving love. Each of the three manifests this self-giving love toward one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father, and he gives himself over to the Father's will to redeem his people. The Spirit gives of himself to reveal the Son to his people. And both recreated, man and woman, equally possess this image within. But that image is enhanced. It's magnified, it's glorified, not by men and women, men and women having the exact same roles. The son takes on a different role than the father without losing any deity. So see, to diminish any one of their 
unique roles would cause us to miss something about our great God and who he is. The same is true with the different roles given to men and the roles given to women. These roles are there to reveal something more of who God is and what his image is within us. This is so important. If we seek to erase these God-given roles, then we make the image of God within us less visible. We don't want to do that. We're image bearers of the living God. Think about that. Think about that. We're, we're image bearers of the living God, and we're equal before the cross. He's given us different divinely assigned roles. And when male and female live and work together as God intended, it's beautiful. There's joy, satisfying, and it's God-glorifying. So let's grow and encourage one another to embrace and love the roles he has for us because God will best be seen within us, within our marriages, within our families, within our church, and within our culture, as we are obedient to him in those roles he's given us. And because it exalts God, it exalts God the Father, God the Son, and it exalts God the Holy Spirit. And to not live up to the role God has given us as men and women, or to cross role boundaries that God has for us, is to cloud the visibility of God in and through us as redeemed people. To send a distorted message to the lost world around us. His created order is beautiful. God took delight in it, and what did he say? It is good. It is good. But because these are such critical images, is it any wonder that they're at the center of such a strong battle today? We shouldn't be surprised But Satan wants to wage war. Our flesh wants to wage war, and our culture wants to wage war. God determined how we best glorify him. So we need to look at God's heart. His heart for male and his heart for female, his heart for authority, his heart for leadership, and we need to bow. We must look at at all of that and say, God, you tell me how I best glorify you. And I will humbly bring myself in line with that. You're my creator. You have every right to rule in what you've made. And your rule is good. And you know, if we're not grounding our lives and our thinking, if we're not shepherding our hearts in the word of God, if we don't understand what his word says, what it means to be a woman biblically, or how those roles are to function within our homes and within our church and within our culture, then sooner or later we'll be vulnerable in our homes and in our churches and in our culture, to the very same kinds of thinking that's turning the secular world upside down. Listen, theology matters. It matters. Your view of God will determine your view of every other aspect of your life. We need to take it seriously. Because when we choose to live apart from his design, we distort the gospel picture and miss the entire point of being a woman. You know, every time I value my independence, my life plans, my opinions over what would bring God glory and displaying his image, it's rebellion against God and who he created me to be. And you know, the truth apart from the gospel, it, this makes no sense. None of life makes sense apart from what, who God is and what he has done for us. It's our only motivator to live in the fullness of God's good plan. Scripture instructs us. In Titus 2 and in 1 Peter, as Christian women 
calls us to be reverent, calls us to be uh, not gossipers, not a slave to much wine, to teach what is good, to love our husbands, to love our children, to be sensible and pure, to be workers at home, showing hospitality, being kind. And we do this so as not to dishonor the word of God. And Titus 2 instructs us that older women are to teach the younger women. And ladies, we need to be teaching our daughters and our sons God's design for them as male and female. They need to hear the truth from God's word, from creation regarding biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, so they will recognize and reject the world's voice and can be confident in who God created them to be. And lastly, another loud competing voice in our culture, and it's just, it just keeps getting louder and louder and kind of changing, but it has been for years, is that of sexuality and sensuality. You know, we, we live in a culture of extremes. Sensuality and sexuality is big money. Sales. It's being marketed to us in every way. 1 Timothy 2.9 says this. Women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. How countercultural is that? We're called to be modest, discreet, and self-controlled in our actions and how we dress. See, our attitude, our behavior and dress is all a matter of worship. That's Romans 12. I like what John MacArthur says about this. He says, you show me a woman with a beautiful character. You show me a woman with a meek and quiet spirit. Show me a woman with an incorruptible heart. You show me a woman who's come to worship God, and I'll show you a woman whose wardrobe you don't have to worry about because her heart dictates that issue. It's a matter of conviction. It's a matter of conviction. The way we dress goes right to the heart of why we wear what we wear. Any discussion about modesty or on modesty begins with the heart. Doesn't begin with the hemline, I should say. And the world's loud, competing voice to us is that we can make much of ourselves. We can feel good about ourselves. We can flaunt ourselves, flaunt however we want to flaunt, flaunt certain features. And you have the right to do that. And you have the freedom to dress however you want and to, to expose whatever you want. It's your body. If you don't like it, don't look kind of attitude. That's what the world would say, right? But it's different for us. We are called and we have the privilege to display something way more glorious, our Savior. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 3 says there are beauty. It doesn't come from our outward adornment. That it should be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So what should our aim be as women? Well, if we profess Christ, our motivation for what we wear is to be distinct. It's to be different than the culture. 
while men are fully responsible before God for their mind, their heart, and their eyes, guys can be stimulated visually by the things we by the things they see. Even if they don't want to look. And when we dress immodestly, well, it sends a visual message to a guy, whether I mean, we mean to or not. In Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about going to great effort to help a brother not stumble in his walk with the Lord. So whether we understand it or not, guys are in a battle. You know what? And we have battles too. Some may be the same thing. It could be really intense for them though. We can help and love them by dressing modestly. Somebody put it like this, giving guys a rest for their eyes. Doesn't that sound good? Giving them a rest for their eyes. They don't even have to battle. So the question we can ask, questions we can ask, are our clothes provocative? Are they seductive? Do our clothes honor nakedness? What's the purpose of clothes? Anyone? To cover. Yes, to cover nakedness. Not draw attention to your naked skin. That's not what clothes are for, right? Especially certain areas. I love this. Modesty is humility expressed in what we wear. Modesty is humility expressed in what we wear. It's a desire to honor God and serve others. And not promote or provoke sensuality or lust. Modesty means you agree with the Lord about the true purpose of clothing. And you set aside self-interest to dress in a way that exalts Christ. This is so uncomfortable for me to talk about, really. It's a hard thing. Um, but you know, we're women. We need to talk about it. We're mature women. We just, need to, we just need to cover it. We need to know God's word and his heart for us. So, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to any of us that there are certain body parts that need to be covered. Well, they all, you know, they do. Whatever. <laughs> but that are for, for um, husband's eyes only. Maybe doctor's eyes if they need to be, but... Husband's eyes only. It's not for anyone else's eyes. And one is being, you know, just our, our breasts. Okay, they're not for everyone else to see. Whether full or in part. Cleavage causes men to lust. That's just the way it is. And you know what? It even makes me uncomfortable. And I don't even know why. But it does. I just don't want to look. I don't want to see it. That's truth. It doesn't cause every man to, but it, but it does cause many to. And we need to know it. We just need to know. We need to love our brothers in Christ. And you know what? If you see me dressing immodestly, please tell me. We need to help one another. Are we teachable in that? Would we be offended if someone came to us and said, you know, if they did that, I would think, man, she loves me. 
And she loves the Lord. See, the world rebelliously flaunts, seduces, and markets with sexuality and sensuality. Are we being seduced and lured by the world's temptation to look more like the world? Or are we loving and worshiping God by taking care to be purposeful in how we dress? You know, I'm not talking about wearing a gunny sack. You know, that would be an extreme distraction, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about wearing pink either. Sarah, I mentioned you wearing pink today talking about biblical women because I wear black almost all the time. I'm like, I know, and even lace. And that's not what femininity, really, truly biblical femininity is all about. Only it's, it's a good thing to do that, but it's fine to wear whatever as long as we're modest and not drawing attention to um, certain things. So when we're shopping, oh, let me say this. Modesty really is about conviction. I think that's the most important thing to get. Modesty is about conviction. What I wear relates to who and how I worship and how I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we're shopping, you know, we need to be intentional. We need to ask others who have the same convictions. Those will help me live on the principles based on those convictions. I need help. I need help as my I need help from you, my sisters in Christ. In closing, I just want to say this. There will always be cultural trends and shifts and changes. But we can take our cues and our definitions from scripture, not from the culture. We can confidently trust in that. The word of God never changes. So comforting. Without a doubt, in our mixed condition, we will always have to guard against our self-willed mindset in our own hearts. And I hope that after today, you'll ask God, you know, is there anything? kind of worldly thinking seeped into my heart. Our lives are about bringing glory to Jesus Christ. And we do that as male and females in distinct and distinctive ways. That's why God created us male and female to tell this great love story of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. Men and women point to that story in different ways as men and women. That's why it's so important that we get our womanhood right and we do our womanhood the way that God's word points us to. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that we would bow under your word and embrace who you've created us to be. Help us to know where you want us to change. Lord, help us to be humble women, embracing um, our femininity and our womanhood. God, as we go into discussion group time now, I pray, Lord, that you would be made much of and that we would encourage one another with your truth. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.